Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, radio host Lee Garrett's unknown enemies have taken advantage of a major snowstorm to set a trap at Lee's apartment and he barely escaped electrocution. After such a close call, he's had to fight with his bosses to stay on the air. Now, here's the rest of Chapter 15. He was just packing up to go home when he was called to the lobby, but his annoyance evaporated when he saw the rumpled figure standing there. Tucker, what brings you here? How are things? Things are good, Lee, thanks to you. That's why I dropped in, to thank you for calling my boss. I really appreciate it, man. He gripped Lee's hand in a vice and then turned it into a soul grip and a half hug. Harry wasn't supposed to say anything about that. He didn't, not to me. I found out through the grapevine. Anyway, uh, not too many people had done anything like that for me. Thanks. Lee searched for a flip reply, but then said simply, You saved my life. You, uh, want to go for a beer? Maybe at the palace? The man's craggy face split into a grin. The thought of watching strippers in the middle of the day was both tempting and repellent, but Lee could use a drink after facing the Inquisition. Tucker agreed to a counter-proposal of a quick beer at Clambaker's next door. It was near the end of their second beers that Lee found himself spilling the details about the harassment in the meeting he'd just been through. He hadn't meant to. There was something about Tucker. Or maybe it was the beer. "'That's friggin' unbelievable! And the cops aren't doing squat?' "'They're trying.' Whoever it is has been smart, or very lucky. We'll see how lucky they are if they try anything when I'm around. Tucker's face was red, his jaw like a steel wedge, and Lee realized that the man was being completely serious. Tucker wasn't someone he would want as an enemy. There wasn't any way the man could help, but it was nice to know how much he wanted to. When they were saying their goodbyes, the truck driver compressed Lee's hand again. If anybody comes around hassling you, you let me know. I mean it. Tucker will be there for you, and if there's any more of this crap about taking you off the air, I drive by here all the time and I'll park my friggin' truck in their lobby. He gave a crooked smile and turned away. Lee walked to his car, reflecting that he'd learned a few new things about friendship that day. At the station the next morning, he felt a surge of shame as he realized the new set of habits he'd formed, checking the back seat of his car before he got in, circling the parking lot every morning, shining his headlights into every shadow before he parked, listening intently before walking down the silent hallways. The empty building filled him with foreboding. Once he was in the control room, he had to push all that aside and pull out every scrap of talent in his bag of radio tricks. He threw out punchlines like firecrackers and turned callers into comedians. No one was indispensable, but he knew he'd better come damn close. He'd been served notice. Caller ID was installed later that morning. Part of him wondered about baiting his enemy into calling. He'd have to think about it. Norwood's assistant, Pam Hardy, found him in the hall near the production studio. The hesitation in her step as she drew close told Lee that she knew at least some of what had transpired the previous day. Lee, can you, uh, spare a minute? For you, two minutes, maybe even three or four. She gave a relieved smile of bright white teeth against coffee skin. Norwood dumped all the annoying jobs on her, but she never complained, was always cheerful. Lee was sorry to cause her discomfort. He'd much rather make her smile again. It's the snow next Saturday, a week from tomorrow. Did you remember it? 
Easter seals, sure. Am I just riding, or do I do some emceeing? They might ask you to say something, but probably not. Otherwise, just go for a ride, show the flag, and have some fun. The track shop will provide one of their rental machines, but do you have a snowmobile suit? An old one. I won't be a fashion trendsetter. Well, I'd lend you mine if you weren't about six inches too tall. You know, I do look good in pink, but those bulges in the front might be a problem. She laughed. Funny, they don't bother me at all. Anyway, I'll email you the rest of the details. Any other questions? Yes. What's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? She frowned a mock rebuke, then flashed another warm smile and walked away with an extra sway of her hips. Later he got a call from Matt Miller, voice heavy with concern. I heard about your car breaking down on New Year's. Too close for comfort the way I heard it. Are you recovered yet, from the frostbite and everything? Oh, sure, yeah. He still had a lot of pain in his fingers when he moved them certain ways, and all of the frostbitten areas were very sensitive, but Matt didn't need to hear about that. Good, then you have no excuse. Miller went on to describe an annual charity hockey game between a media no-star team and a team of high school phys ed teachers, with proceeds going to minor hockey. The day before Valentine's? Lee checked his schedule. Sure, I guess, except I haven't been on the ice this year. And just what difference would that make, exactly? Okay, okay, every game needs a little comic relief. That's why I knew I could count on you. Any gear you need, just talk to Reg at Sports Swap. Lee scribbled the information into his daytimer. Comic relief or not, he definitely needed to get some ice time in the next week or he'd get hurt in a hockey game. He wondered whether Candace knew how to skate. Maybe she could come with him. With a shock, he remembered that he'd be able to ask her in just a few hours. Their first date. In dismay, he felt sweat come out on his palms. That was ridiculous. He could stand in front of thousands of people and ad-lib a speech without a flutter. How could the prospect of a simple meal with just one woman put his composure through the blender? He couldn't remember the last time he'd gone on a first date. He usually met women at social functions and asked them out for a coffee or a drink afterward. That was very different, with no time for anticipation, good or bad. Dating was a territory he hadn't ventured into since before Michaela, and he had no idea what to expect anymore. He wasn't even sure what to wear. Tecklenburg's was normally pretty casual, a suit would be too formal. He opted for a sports jacket and slacks, no tie. He wondered what Candace would wear. It was pleasant to imagine. Her apartment building was about twenty years old, with mustard-colored brick above concrete foundations that showed a few small cracks. It looked clean, though, the balconies free of obvious clutter. He was surprised to find her waiting in the entranceway. I guess the woman is supposed to put on a show of making the guy wait, she said, but I've never been into that. I hope that doesn't shatter the mystique. Mystique completely intact, and the gentleman is grateful. He swept an arm toward the parking lot, thinking that his aging Volvo was a poor substitute for a chariot. He'd vacuumed it, but when Candace got in, a traitorous Snickers bar wrapper jumped out from under the passenger seat. She casually scooped it up and pushed it into the ashtray. Get a little too hungry to wait? More like an emergency boost someday I had to skip lunch. She walked ahead of him into the restaurant, giving him a chance to take a long look. Fashionable boots reached just above the hem of her long coat, which looked to be wool and maybe hand-woven. It was muted gray and tan, with periwinkle accents against an ivory background. He was grateful she hadn't changed her hair. It was loose and wavy and full, the way he liked it. Only a close look under the bright light of the vestibule confirmed that she was wearing makeup. 
She didn't need any. He took her coat. Underneath was a raspberry sweater with a delicate leaf motif and a tan skirt that reached a few inches above her knees. Against her fair complexion and dark hair, the effect was striking and elegant, and he told her so. Thank you, sir. Now as long as I remember to steer clear of the lobster, I might just stay that way. Too true. A little messy for date food. No ribs, no spaghetti, nothing that squirts. Is that the voice of experience? Not really, but I have a dim memory of some coaching my mother gave me back. Oh, it was probably in the Pleistocene era. In that case, you've aged remarkably well. A portrait of yourself in the attic, perhaps. You should see it. Dorian Gray's was a baby compared to mine. They laughed and ordered wine and clam chowder. I've listened to your show a few times lately. I like it, but you sound different in person. I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that, he laughed. Most people have a telephone voice, too. You just don't think about it. I suppose it has to do with overcoming the limitations of the equipment. You have to work the language harder, enunciate more clearly, even exaggerate the cheerfulness. It takes a lot to push a smile through all those electronics. You always sound cheerful. Part of the job. Who wants to start the day with some guy who sounds worse off than they are? Anyway, what with the way we have to condense things, and all of the station's IDs and imaging we have to use every time we open our mouths, it's bound to sound artificial. Then you get something like those motormouth DJ stereotypes. He constricted his throat to force more of the sound to his upper palate and covered one ear with a hand. Hey, folks, it's a fabulous, one-of-a-kind spectacular with something for everyone that you won't want to miss. Be there. Candace's laugh of surprise turned heads around the room. Lee grinned. We can do it better than anybody. Yes, I can see that. She laughed again, looking sheepish. Let's just forget I ever said anything, shall we? He nodded his agreement and then sat back to let the waitress deliver their chowder. As the first nervousness wore off, the need to fill every silence with words disappeared. Lee asked about her work. She asked about how he got into radio. Old stories with a fresh audience. The ebb and flow of her eyes and the lift of her lips was the language that held his attention the most. He remembered to ask her to come skating with him. She was free a week from Tuesday, clearly pleased to have a place in his future beyond one date. "'I have to ask you what it is you like about country music,' he said. "'Hmm, I need to think about that. What do you like about the oldies music you play?' "'It comes from a simpler time, I guess. Every song is associated with a memory, most good, some bad.' Even those are bittersweet. Plus the lyrics counted in those days. Happy. Not about how much the world stinks. If I want that, I can watch TV. He hoped she wasn't a big TV fan. Oh, and the harmonies, too. Fantastic vocal harmonies. The Four Tops, Mamas and Papas, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Nobody seems to bother with that anymore. Well, country music is the same. Cheerful? Are you kidding? When was the last time you listened to it? All that cheating and hurting was ages ago. Now the songs are about family values and appreciating life and love and good times. And if you want harmonies, you've got to listen to Rascal Flats or one of the girl bands. They're fantastic. He wasn't convinced, but the smile it brought to her face made him want to believe. It speaks to me, she said. It says real things about my life. What does it say about first dates? he asked. It says... She stopped, as if she'd been about to say something facetious, but changed her mind. It says they often stay in your memory for a lifetime. Here's to one worth keeping, he raised his wine glass. 
They drank the toast, then she lifted her glass to be filled, and he rested his hand lightly on hers to hold the glass steady. Every cell of his skin was aware of every cell of hers. He relaxed enough to enjoy his seafood lasagna, though watching forkfuls of Alfredo pasta pass between her full lips was just as enjoyable. He'd forgotten the pleasure of watching a beautiful woman eat, and adjust her hair, and savor wine in a delicate throat, and breathe. She protested that she needed to preserve her girlish figure, so he skipped the fudge and caramel dessert he'd been considering. He had coffee. She chose tea. While they were waiting for it, Candace turned her head, bringing her full profile into view with light behind it. An image flashed into Lee's mind, a profile just like that, sunlit through a car window. The stoplight, he muttered. What did you say? Sorry, I, I just remembered where I'd seen you, before we met. You're going to tell me we were together in a past life, right? No, he laughed. Not quite that far back. A month, maybe. We were beside each other at a stoplight. And you remembered that? He shrugged. You made an impression. A good one, I hope. No doubt about that. He was strangely pleased, as if the incident had been a sign that they would be together. They hadn't made any plans for after dinner. He suggested a movie. She picked a new comedy with Scarlett Johansson and George Clooney. He approved of her taste in actors, but the movie got little of his attention. Soon after it started, he felt her fingers intertwine with his, and he gave them a squeeze. Her glance made his heart quicken. A palm filmed with sweat and an arm that threatened to fall asleep couldn't persuade him to move. When Clooney and Johansson began a slow dance, he and Candace both shifted in their seats, bringing her warm, nylon-covered leg up against his. He strained to feel the smoothness of her skin through the fabric and lost whole sections of the movie that way. On the way back to her apartment, they were quiet. He pulled into a parking space and almost turned off the ignition, then realized it might be misinterpreted. Suddenly all the awkwardness he thought they'd left behind was back in full force. He glanced at Candace, and her eyes were downcast. Lee, I... He lifted a finger to touch her lips. She raised her eyes to his. There's no rush, he said softly. I had a terrific time. I'm happy to leave it at that tonight. Her eyes were shining, and suddenly she was in his arms, the yearning of the whole evening channeled into a bruising kiss. The scent of her hair and skin suffused him like the heady rush of alcohol. Then they were apart, her eyes liquid magnets in the lamplight. They walked slowly to the door of the apartment building, oblivious to the cold. She fumbled with the key. With the door open, she turned back, and they kissed again, sweetly, tenderly, knowing it would need to sustain them through long hours apart. That's Chapter 15. Our episode continues with Chapter 16 as Lee and Police Detective Cheryl Davis review the suspects in the attempts on his life. Monday morning, he got a call from Davis to meet her at the police station. She said she had information she wasn't willing to discuss anywhere else. A uniformed officer showed him to a small room with a desk and four chairs. Why, Detective Davis, I didn't know you raided your own office. He looked at the bare walls as if admiring the decor. Funny man. Our department shares this one when we need to interview hookers and pimps, drug addicts and such, but they let me bring you in here if I vouched for your good behavior. He laughed. Just as long as you promise you won't take advantage of me while we're all alone like this. Mr. Garrett, I think it would be best if you'd forget that I'm a woman. If you can't do that, then remember my husband is a 200-pound martial arts instructor. Can you do that for me? 
Consider me chastised, detective. When she turned her head, he looked over her figure in the gray suit, scrupulously pressed. He realized he'd never seen her any other way, but didn't know whether the crisp look was out of respect for her position or an obsessive tidiness. She had a good body, and the sharply creased clothes showed it off better than loose garments would have. Maybe that was the reason. She motioned him to a chair, but sat on the edge of the desk herself. He was surprised to see her hesitate. There's no way to say this without the department looking bad. Or me, she looked him in the eye. I've just found out that the intelligence unit has a couple of sources in the Skins gang. What? He jerked up straight. She raised a hand like a stop sign. Not cops. They're paid informants. They were busted for something else about a year ago, but let off on condition that they feed us information on the gang and what it's up to, in exchange for money. Not much. They'd never given us anything worthwhile, either. But I read over some of the recent reports. One of the informants does mention another gang member being pissed off at some radio guy in town. No names. They never give names. Anyway, the rest of the group wasn't interested. There's no indication that anything was done about it. Still sounds pretty convincing to me. Why didn't you know about this before? Don't the other detectives know you're on a case involving the skins? Yes, they do. And I've asked about this very situation. I guess I didn't ask the right people. Lee slouched in the chair, letting air drain from his lungs. Don't blame yourself. I'm willing to bet someone deliberately blocked that information from getting to you. You're talking about Sergeant Dieter. Don't jump to conclusions. He wouldn't have the authority. You wouldn't know who I meant if it hadn't already crossed your mind. Besides, you don't need authority if you can call in favors. We'll get a lot farther if you're honest with me, and with yourself, detective. For a moment he thought she was going to end the meeting. Then her shoulders relaxed and she looked at the ceiling. What matters is that the information isn't worth much. The Skins aren't a corporation. They don't have regular strategy meetings, more like rant sessions every once in a while over drugs and booze. One or two of them get fired up over something and then a few go and trash a storefront or spray graffiti on somebody's driveway. Even then they always pick a target of another race, blacks or Asians or native people. Always. Never someone like you. Until now. Maybe they think I'm a traitor to my race. If you were carrying out a crusade for racial rights or something, I might see it. But one comment on the radio? And even if they chose you as a target, they'd take one swift action to send you a message or make an example of you. This continuing vendetta, it just doesn't make sense based on what we know. You just told me how little you know about these assholes. And I'm not going to ignore it. In fact, I've asked the chief to have the IU put some pressure on these informants, have them dig around and come up with something useful for a change. But my instincts and experience are telling me it's much more likely there's one person behind these things, someone you know. She caught and held his gaze. So let's go through it again. Can you think of anyone who has a grudge against you and the opportunity to carry out these attacks? Sure, Fred Dieter. It gave him a childish satisfaction to see the clench of her jaw. I've already told you about any others I could think of. Ken Cousins, Elliot Dean, my former friend Andre Menard. He wasn't at the casino night, though. Yes, and some of your own colleagues could just as likely be suspects. Touché. What about the incident with the hydro wire? Any enemies who work for a utility company? No. Wait, uh, not a utility company, but there's a guy who's a cable TV repairman. He's not too fond of me. 
except the death threat came before I ever met the guy. Name? Lenny Schwartz looks after a blind nephew that, well, it's a long story. He's a piece of work, but I can't see him trying to kill me. I'll check him out, she shifted, looking uncomfortable. Have you ever considered your ex-wife, or maybe the man she's with now? Michaela could never do anything like that. Robert Farrell, he's a denturist, doesn't know me well enough to hate me. Besides, if I kicked, there goes the alimony, making things more expensive for him. Life insurance? My kids are the beneficiaries now. Did you ever find that Van Horn prick from the United Way luncheon? Yes, he comes from money, not a likely gang member. A friend on the force told me the kid's been questioned in connection with some hazings that got out of hand, but never charged with anything. He probably just thought he was being funny when he made that remark to you. Guess you had to be there. Radio contests could be a lot of fun, and they could be a pain in the ass. Some people had nothing better to do than play every contest fanatically. The rules only let them win a prize or qualify for a big giveaway once a month, but they'd call until they succeeded. A few were grateful and pleasant to talk to. Many were just mercenary and didn't even sound excited to win. A lot of those had no loyalty and played just as often on other radio stations. But 90% of the listeners were ecstatic just to get through to him on the phone and thrilled to have a chance to win something. Lee couldn't help but get a lift from that. It was a kick to give things away, especially to people he knew were fiercely devoted to the radio station. The latest giveaway trip to Jamaica brought squeals of delight, happy laughter, bizarre incantations for luck, and promises to take Lee along. He gently deflected those. Pam Hardy stuck her head into the control room just before nine o'clock. He waved her in. Valentine's Day, a week from Monday. Rob says you guys decided to take callers with romance stories, right? Great idea. So each daily winner gets a voucher for dinner for two at Winston's. How would you like to go, too? You mean as an escort? Three's a crowd, sweetheart. I mean, we have some extra vouchers. Chuck thought maybe you'd like to take somebody special, on your own. Winston's is a great place. Chuck? Really? He's not a bad guy, you know. I know. I guess he's just been in the wrong place at the wrong time lately. Yeah, sure. I'd love one. Great. Enjoy. She handed him a printed voucher with the Winston's and CTBX logos on it, flashed him a hundred-megawatt smile, and walked out. Lee grinned at the closed door. He'd been stumped about what to do for Candace for Valentine's. Winston's would be perfect, a lot better than he could afford on his own. Although a free dinner might not send quite the right message. He'd have to pick up some flowers or candy, too, something he'd actually have to pay for. He saw a look of surprise on Karen's face when he walked past her reception desk and realized he was whistling. In Chapter 17 of Dead Air, Lee rides in a charity snowmobile rally and finds himself in a race for his life. You can learn more about the radio business on my website in a couple of videos about the radio secrets most of us don't know. Go to the Dead Air page of my site, scottoverton.ca, and if you can't wait to find out what happens to our persecuted hero, Lee Garrett, pick up a copy of Dead Air. Thanks, as always, to Audionautics.com for the podcast music, and thank you for listening. I'm Scott Overton. Scott Overton.